Welcome to your Church Friends Podcast. I am Chris. I'm Yurduk. And we are here today with a special guest, Brittany. Brittany, you can say hi. Hi. <laughs> we're here. We're going to record our episode on Haman for the Villain Series. But Brittany has been on the podcast before. She did an interview with Murdoch on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think from what I remember, you guys covered a majority of the Beatitudes while you guys were talking about that. And I wasn't there for that one. So I was slightly jealous after I listened to it. And uh, I was like, we got to do this again with Brittany actually on the show with all three of us. So we started communicating. And I think you had messaged me, Brittany, if we ever talk about the book of Esther, you wanted in through the planning of the villain series. We were like, who's a villain? And obviously, Haman, the guy who's tried to destroy all the Jews is a villain. So I was like, Murdoch, do you think Brittany would do this? And he said, yeah. So here you are. You're back on the show. And we're going to talk about that. I'm just going to say, go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it. It was a great discussion. And maybe I'll just also throw out there that we are doing the villain series because we wanted you on the show. We didn't really want to talk about Esther. And we're like, who else is in there? Mordecai, Haman, Haman. Yeah, sure. Villains. And that's the fabricated story of why we're in the villain series now. <laughs> but definitely glad to, to, to have this one. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. Esther, I mean, so if you have to pick one villain from a Jewish perspective, a Hebraic mindset, Haman is going to be the villain that is going to be on everybody's mind because I think he gets the crown and the honor for most anti-Semitic of the the writings. So yeah, we could talk a little bit about that. But if you guys want to start out with questions or anything, I can start there. Otherwise, you know, I'm just going to ramble on for hours. Yeah, my first thing is Chris said Heyman, I said Heyman, you said Haman. I know that you are thousands percent more fluent in Hebrew than we are. So correct our pronunciations here. What, what's a good way of saying his name? For the English pronunciation, Heyman is the English pronunciation. But when you say it in Hebrew, it is Haman. And if my husband does get back before we get done with this, we're going to have to sing you the song that I sent you. Um, in a text to the Beauty and the Beast lyrics, uh, Haman rhymes better with Gaston. So, no, but that is the actual Hebrew pronunciation. It's Haman. So, um, yeah, there's a couple of differences in like words. So, if I say anything that you guys don't know, just be like, hey, I don't know that word because sometimes my brain will just like switch over and I don't realize people don't say these things. Yeah, that does make more sense. I remember you sending that and I was like, I don't get it because Haman and Ghassan don't really rhyme as well as Haman and and everything. And and just to throw out there before we kind of get rolling, when I read this and when you're talking about like Haman being the most like kind of hateful person out there to the Jewish nation, the one title at the end of his life that kind of gets thrown out there consistently, it's in chapter eight of Esther. And I think it's at the tail end of chapter nine also is Haman, the enemy of the Jews the jews yes and and i never really caught those that together with it when i read esther uh, but this time as we were getting ready to study for that i really kind of connected those dots that like that is a title 
uh, not a great one, but like that is that is definitely a title that was laid on his life. And honestly, this um, the story of Esther, and I'm going to get into this. So I'm going to prepare our listeners now. This isn't going to be shallow, not even a bit. So we're going to dive right into the to the depth of this. Um, this isn't a shallow story. Esther's not surface level, and it goes in a lot of different directions. So I'm going to approach this from just about every direction that I have heard it taught from or that I know it taught from. I'm going to be using some of the Midrash Rabbah. I'm going to throw that out automatically because most most Western Christians are not going to have any idea what that is, right? So the Midrash, I guess, is the best way to put it, is a commentary on the Torah and the five five or six um, books that the, the the Megillah, so the scrolls. And so it's it's a compilation of halakhic teachings. Halakhic is like the way we walk it out. That's that's kind of what that means. So Esther specifically is a book of like the way we walk it out. There's apocrypha to it, but um, there's apocalypse to it also. So there's a lot of, and apocalypse just means revealing of what is hidden. And so as we get into Esther specifically, that's going to be very important because the word Esther means hidden. It comes from the Hebrew word, which is Esther, which means I will hide. And so just, I mean, throwing it out there. Um, do you want me to do a brief recap of kind of what Esther looks like so everybody knows where we're coming from? What she looks like, yeah. Well, it's so great. We're like, yeah, what does Esther look like? Eventually, we'll get to Haman Haman and, and talk about this villain. But yeah, let, let's set up Esther a bit. I mean, looks like as in the story of Esther, not her specifically. Oh, okay. No, I just thought because... Esther is a gorgeous woman, like according to all accounts, like she was the most gorgeous in the land. Talking about Gaston going after Belle, I mean, this is she was the Belle of the land over there. She became queen. Yeah, and well, I meant like the book, but yeah, that too. <laughs> we can set it up. Sorry, uh, I, I was doing the shallow thing. I'll let you do the deep thing. Yeah, give us the look of, of us. Got to get a balance here. That's fine. So to start it, I guess. Esther as a whole, the book of Esther, is a book that is in the writings of the Hebrew Tanakh. So I'm going to first start a little bit with just knowing what I guess the grounds are of this, like what we're even talking about, because if someone were to jump on and be like, I don't even know what this is, I don't really read. It's good to know like who our characters are and what the things mean. So this book is where we get the Hebrew celebration, which is why I asked you guys, like if you do the book of Esther, this would be a great time to air this episode specifically is uh, Purim. Purim means lots, to cast lots. And that's where, uh, so Haman or Haman, he was a very superstitious man. And you might not, like, gather that from a traditional biblical reading, but from a Talmudic reading out of the Talmud or a Midrashic reading out of the Midrash or Mishnah, you're going to get more of the background of he is a very superstitious man. And the Talmud tells us, I mean, I'll just tell you this. I don't know all the stories about him specifically, but I do know that he was a barber, bath attendant, a groom, a public crier, and an astrologer, according to myth, I guess, according to legend. So those are some interesting like side notes about Haman. But the story of Esther specifically is where we get the celebration Purim, like I said, and that is a big celebration that we do. And I, I sent you guys Haman Tashin last year, right? So that's what they come with. Haman, see Haman, Haman. 
So Hamantaschen are the little three-pointed hat. I guess you could say Haman's ears. Some people call them Haman's pocket, uh, depending on which sect of Judaism you're from. But there's little cookies and they're filled with stuff. And the whole scene of Esther from a Hebraic mindset is it is a costume party. It is hidden. Everything is this big costume party. So we wear masks and we eat lots of things and we put on plays and do little charades because the book itself is reflecting of a costume party and everyone has a role and Esther obviously is a Hebrew girl her name is Hadessa and Mordecai is her uncle and he is a Jew right you hear Mordecai the Jew throughout Esther and you're like why is it so important why does this guy hate this Jew so much so you have those two roles and I'm gonna start digging in a little bit later on maybe like what that would reflect a little bit deeper into because I got some like thoughts rambling around in here that want to escape but not time yet yeah the costume party and this is the only book where it doesn't mention God at all right so the big question is well like what's God's costume what's what's the what's Hashem we, we say Hashem so what is the costume of Hashem well Hashem's costume is he doesn't exist surprise so that's his costume in the book of Esther is he's not there like it's um this the, the rabbis ask questions like where is he at the Esther why is God missing why isn't he mentioned and if you read the Septuagint the, the Greek version of Esther the first verse is actually significantly longer and a lot different. It's actually, it's more of an, it's apocalypse. It's actually a vision Mordecai receives. And this, there's this dragon and it's, you'd have to go read it because it is a different telling than the telling that we have in the canonized scriptures that you guys would hold. But if you go back to the Septuagint, that would be an interesting read for you to read the apocalypse version of the Septuagint where Mordecai receives this vision and whatnot. So like I said, this book is probably the most fun for me and the most like hard because there's so many angles and it's been dealt with differently over the centuries. Specific questions on that so far. I'm not going to jump in with a question, but I think that as far as what most people might know about this book is what you said, like, oh, God isn't mentioned in it, right? We tend to know God isn't mentioned in it. And then we all quote, for such a time as this, right? Like, that's why you're in this position for such a time as this. Like, those are kind of the two things that most people would be most like, you know, familiar with those couple of facts there. Even though God isn't called out by name and you're not getting like, thus says the Lord and all these interactions, I was seeing God through it in a lot of ways of just like, I would say just how we experience life of God is working through the background and just like, wait, why did that happen? Why would the king randomly not be able to sleep and then want those scrolls that have to do with that thing? And I just kind of see like how, I don't know, God just lining things up for his purposes. So he's never called out, but I feel like that's what my experience when I look at a lot of things like I've never, an angel's never popped up in my life. There's never, like, you know, there's not been that kind of interaction. But when I look at things and I look at a prayer life and I see where things go, there's fasting in this book to where, like, hey, everybody's got to fast. And then, you know, God moving on that. I see God in a really real way more through like my type of experience, even though, yeah, he's not called out or, you know, anything beyond. Yeah. Like, even when it says the people later on in the book that they're scared of the Jews, like, it's not even that they're scared of the God of the Jews. So yeah, really absent from things, but that was just my perspective to to give to that because you hear a lot that God's not in it by name, but I actually on this read some all over the place. That's coming from when like Haman is like so filled with rage at Mordecai that he's like, 
I am going to kill him. Him and his wife and his buddies have come up with the idea of they're going to build this gallows of, uh, what is it, 75 feet high to, to show him hanging. Like that's like to put on display, right? And then that the next verse followed up with that is that night the king couldn't sleep. And, you know, Murdoch, you mentioned that that's like God right there. I actually have it written. I don't know if you guys could see that. And whoever's listening, you can't see it. But I wrote God actually right there in my readings because that to me, I was like, that's that's God thing they're working in there. So I'm glad you brought that up because to me, that was such uh, the fascinating part of reading through the story, looking at this villain is seeing God in the invisible, like how you're saying he doesn't have a costume in the like celebration because he is moving within the things, even though we don't see it. And that's kind of the beauty of, of really a lot of this to me. And I'm going to probably blow your guys' mind a little bit because after I go into some depth on how the story of Esther actually probably is more of a not only reflection into the past of what might could have been, because in Hebrew literature, we play with things a lot, right? We use symbology. We bring out things from past, from what, what was and what could have been, but we reflect it towards the future of what is. So I'm going to actually connect some things that I think is going to blow your mind on God being present and something that is kind of newer to me as I'm reading and discovering last year at Purdue and we read the book of Esther every year and I'm like dang I want to know more about this book like I, I just feel like it's so dead compared to the rest of it so without further ado I'm going to tell you some of these things because like I said they're exploding in me and I don't even know where to start because there's so much information but start out with this Haman is, do you guys know where, like, who he's from? They had him listed as an Agagite for coming from, like, Agag, right? And through my studies, I saw that, like, would that really have been possible from Saul's time? You know, King Agag and that. And then I think that another spot had him listed as coming from Macedonia, maybe, you know. But how he's listed in the book is uh, as an Agagite or an Agagite, yeah. which, yeah, again, relating to King Agag. That is going to be a big deal for what I'm going to say. So tradition holds that Haman is a 16th generation direct descendant from Agag and that he is therefore an Amalekite, right? Because Agag was the king of the Amalekites. We know that because we read our scriptures. We are good Christians, right? We know that he is a direct descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Therefore, he is an Amalekite. The cool part about this is, is we're going to contrast this. And I'm going to start setting some stage for you here. Mordecai is, he is what we would say, he would be Ben Shaul. So Mordecai is a son of, a, a, a son or a descendant of Saul. He is a Benjaminite. So, I feel like he was a Jew, right? We just said that he was Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, also that, also that. But this is the, so in, I'm going to like walk through a little bit of this and just um, know your calendar, number one. If you, if you take anything away from me, if you ever listen to me, know your calendar. It is so pertinent, pertinent, yes, pertinent, can't speak today. Um, it's so pertinent to understanding like the flow of scripture. And when you start understanding the Hebrew calendar, you start really, really seeing God unfolding in his time and his way. And the authors of the book, so divinely inspired, are going to draw back. So we have Saul descendant Mordecai. So Esther obviously would be a descendant of King Saul. And we have the Amalekite here who is a descendant of Agak. And he is our villain. He is the biggest anti-Semite in history. And some would say the spirit of Hitler. 
like that that's actually used in common vernacular is the same spirit that Hitler had and um, more on that later. <laughs> so, and the anti-Semite, the persecutor of the Jews, the enemy of the Jews. And so what we have here is this two like things. A lot of Hebrew um, literature, they have takum, which word of English, English, correction. It's like correction literature, where even we see in Genesis where Joseph and his brothers are really, if you dig into that and you're reading the Parsha along, there's a lot there that is the correction of even further back to his father and going all the way back to the deception of Jacob when he deceived his brother. So you see the redemption of Judah and Joseph as a redemption of the deception between um, Esau and Jacob. But those type of stories happen throughout scripture consistently through lineage. So this is what Esther is going to reflect for us a little bit here is a, what if there was this correction? Because King Saul lost his, the basically it assumes, obviously we know this didn't happen, but if we assume like the basic uh, assumption would be is if, King Saul would have killed Agag and he would have kept honorable. The messianic promises would have stayed with the line of Saul and he would have kept the messianic promises. And Saul's Saul's generations, meaning it has been passed on to Jonathan and through him. And then this would reflect Mordecai as the savior, the Mashiach. I'm going to set that stage. You can keep that in your mind a bit. That's a little bit of a spoiler. But if you haven't heard that kind of stuff before, it's kind of good to preface that because a lot of people don't think this way. And this is very, very Hebraic thinking on it. A lot of the literature is, as you're reading through the Old Testament, and a lot of it is very messianic tones. We're looking for Messiah literature, right? They're looking for a Messiah. I'm going to jump over to just straight into the story of the time. And I say, know your calendar, because we know from the story that number one, why are the Jews currently, I mean, obviously not, they're not where they're supposed to be. So why are they in Susa? Why are they in Persia? They're in exile. And so you're going to pick up strong tones here of exilic language. Uh, obviously, like they're not practicing their own stuff. And he's going to the king and saying, these people, they don't follow your ways. They don't follow you. Just murder them, right? They don't, they're not a part of this. They're not, they're not benefiting you, king. And so they're in exile. Wait, real quick, before we keep going, because you mentioned a few things. And I just really want to say that I've found all of those things to be uh, super beneficial in study. And it's another layer of study. A lot of times, um, I know it's kind of like, well, let's break down these words and get the meaning like in these small sections. But you're, what you're talking about is the story of scripture as a whole and how mm-hmm. God works through gener- generations and through lineages. And it's a really thing. Uh, it's something that I've found. It's a difficult thing to keep track of is like you said, if you're not used to it. But when you're seeing who are the descendants and what tribe I've also found, where is this happening? Which you just brought up, you know, why are they in Susa? And there's different things happen repeatedly in different places or because, oh, that happened here and then something else is happening. And it's just another like it's a completely different layer of study that I just look at the Bible and go, there's no way that this can just be coincidence. Like there's not an author other than God that's like that good to be able to bring all of these details together in the way. And like you said, pointing it towards the Messiah, as you said, the Messiah is kind of like a an ongoing thing. We tend to look at, oh, yeah, Jesus. but uh, I know that with a bit of different thinking, like there's other people who can fill that role. 
I'm looking forward to what you're talking about with the time, though, because when you're reading Esther, that specifically brings up months and the days of the months and the different things. And I'm familiar with a couple of things, like when you're looking at the first month of the year and, and that. But honestly, I'm not that well versed. So that was just a thing that I wanted to put out as a recommendation to anyone listening is like that might sound complicated depending on where you're at in your study. But if you're pretty comfortable with your scripture, it's like start taking those notes. Go grab the whiteboard and your red string and start tying stuff together and see where the <laughs> connections go. It's it just brings the Bible like so many different layers. For me, when I was looking at it this go around, I started highlighting or or marking with pencil in my Bible the the months. Like so, it, it's very specific about and this year of King Xerxes and this year of King Xerxes and the first month of this and that. And I'm not even gonna try to pronounce the names. I'll wait till Brittany does that. But what I really also enjoyed that you brought up was the lineage of the King Ega of the Amicalites to Haman and Mordecai to Saul, because you see that what really kind of spurs Haman in this all is his seeing Mordecai's refusal to honor him. And that kind of leads kind of down the trail of what Haman does from the end of it. But I'm glad that you brought it up because it is kind of like going back to that moment where Saul kind of failed to destroy completely what God had commanded, you see Mordecai kind of keeping up and what God had commanded and where you see Haman kind of trying to, again, be that presence to overwipe and destroy going back to his ancestry. So I thought that was really cool. I'm glad you painted that picture because that is something that people need to see. And I'm that person because like I was telling you, Brittany, through messages, I'm the guy who's like, here's four points to like how to have a better relationship with God. I'm not like you and Murdoch where it comes into the depth, but reading the Bible and looking at it from that perspective, seeing the bigger play other than it's not really about you, but there is a line and a thread going on. It totally unleashes the word of God in a different way. No, I love hearing what's helping because obviously I know what I know. So I don't know what's helping everybody else, but I'm going to do this. I have my favorite rabbi. I listen to him. I have a few favorite rabbis, but the one that I really like to listen to the most, he plays this game called, where have we heard this in Torah before? And so when I read through Esther, I play this game in my head. So um, I'm going to ask that to you because you just answered my question about the calendar time. So why were they in Persia? And you said they were in exile. And I'm like, hmm, what other story in the Torah do we know where there were a bunch of Jews in exile? Ooh, I'm going to say Egypt. You are correct. So, yes. <laughs> Bible Jeopardy. Here we go. I yep. just don't want to act be a fool and have a completely wrong answer. When I don't know, there will be a pause and Chris can answer. No, it's, you're right. So I, that's, you know, yes, they're in exile. And I'm like, where else do we see this? We see this in Egypt. And my brain is like, okay, well, that's not the only parallel we have with Egypt here. And that's where I want to get onto calendar. So in Egypt, you have the story that we celebrate as Passover, the story, the grand escape out of exile. Moses is their savior, right? They, they refer to him as the savior during the time. And, you know, even in Hebrews, we see a Messiah better than Moses. So Moses still had that title when it was his of the time of the people. And so we're still looking at that, that messianic literature there a bit. But back to the calendar, exile and Egypt, Esther gives us exact dates. And where Esther is our celebration of Purim, Purim is like not, it's the side, it's, it's not a biblical feast, right? It's, it's not something commanded of us. It's a celebration that comes out of it. But Passover is a commanded celebration. It is 
completely something that the Jews would have been taught to celebrate. They would know how to celebrate. It's something very important to them. It is it is a commanded mitzvah. Like you do it and you know how to do it. And we go into reading and my first like thought when I started reading as a person who celebrates feasts is what is the month that it talks about first? It's the 13th of Nisan. It, said at the, it says the 13th day, I believe. Yeah, it says the 13th day of the first month. That's the 13th of Nisan. And for those of you who don't celebrate Passover or feast seasons, the 13th of Nisan is the day before the, the, the eve of Passover, leading into the holy season of Passover. So we not only have this exile theme, we now also have this Passover story. Esther is a Jew. Hadassah, she's a Jew. She is going to want to celebrate this, right? So we can connect this back really quickly. They received, according to Esther, they received the edicts that, you know, they were going to kill all the Jews. Haman had then sent out the edicts that they were going to kill all the Jews. And he had that done and sent out by the 13th of Nisan. The 13th of Nisan ends up being when she receives it. And she writes to Mordecai and she's like, you know, I'm going to fast for three days. Well, let's do some math real quick. That's 13th, 14th, and 15th. So, okay, people fast, like the 13th, that's no problem. People fast on the 13th, that's okay. The, the 14th, that's the eve of Passover. That Passover starts that night. So the firstborns would fast during that day. So there's fasting on the 14th too, that's, that's fine. But you would break it. It's actually commanded to eat. Do not fast when you break, you know, you're breaking this fast. It's celebrating and you're commanded to eat the unleavened bread. And I, w- I want to say it's in the, Midr- the Midrash on it. The, the Midrash Rabbah says Esther writes to Mordecai and says, you know, we're going to fast for these three days. And Mordecai goes, but Esther, you know, this is, this is Passover. We don't fast during this time. What do you mean we're going to fast for three days? We can't be fasting on the 14th and 15th. And she, um, it's all about, you know, the exile and stuff. And he's thinking as a Jew would. And in the actual Midrash Rabbah, it says, elder of Israel, why do we have Passover? And I was like, well, I really like that. That's real nice. Because she's like saying, you know, we wouldn't even be here, like as a Jewish nation, as Jews, if, and they're going to exile all of us, just like we were going to die in Egypt. And he's saying, no, we can't fast for these three days. And she responds, elder of Israel, why do we even have a Passover? And so he then responds back, like I said, this is Midrash Rabbah and the Esther portion. And he responds back, yeah, we'll go ahead and do this fast. And so this plays out really interestingly. If you, I read the Midrash Rabbah and those stories alongside of scripture, because they kind of fill in the gaps of a lot of things of the sages and commentary. So you get this really cool interplay and that's where that information comes from. But I found that really, really nice to be like, yeah, that would be a conversation she would have likely had because it would take a lot out of her to say, let's fast during this holy season when it's a mitzvah to God that we we be eating and feasting and doing doing a festival, doing Passover. And so this is what I found interesting. So what does, what does Esther do? She goes before the king and she calls a banquet. My messianic brain is like, hmm, wonder what kind of banquet she's serving. It's Passover. She's a Jew. 
And so she serves a banquet according to, I think it's chapter five. She serves a banquet and it is, I, I would assume it would be, it's that they're having wine and food, obviously. But like, I'm thinking she is like likely trying to work this into where she is getting to have on the 16th because she's fasted with the 13th, 14th and 15th. If we read this correctly, Passover day starts 14th, that night of 14th because of the Hebrew calendar, it starts at night. And she's having this banquet. And it's funny because the Septuagint version, the English version of the Septuagint, it reads the banquet of the 15th of Nisan. Like the actual, the actual text reads that it's during Passover. She, it doesn't just say the banquet. It says the banquet of the 15th of Nisan. And I'm like, okay, so like the writer knew that there was some intentionality to this. She's celebrating Passover to, to the extent she can. She's in exile. And then th this all begins, right, where she is now having this Passover. So we are back in Egypt, basically. She's in exile. She's this coming out of exile thing, theme is starting to play in our brains. And she requests for a second feast, right? And that was to be on the 16th, which... In chapter six, if you know, we're reading, it says that that's when the king woke up that night, right? Like he was awakened on that night. That would have been the night of the 16th because the Hebrew calendar starts in the evening. So that night that he would have been awoken, that would have passed over into the night of the, the, the 16th because of how the Hebrew calendar operates. So that would have been the second day of Passover. The way that all works together, that's the beginning of the counting of Omar for our calendar. The counting of Omar is where they count the barley. And they bring it to the storehouse and we count all the way up to Shavuot, which is Pentecost. So the 16th starts that counting and she's having another banquet on the 16th. This is all important. These are all important dates for a Hebrew who knows their calendar, right? This is intentional to me. This has absolutely no like, oops, this is not just coincidence. Like there's some intentionality behind what she's doing here. She holds the second banquet on the 16th of Nisan. We see that all play out. And obviously we know kind of where that goes. But what I find interesting about these stories, when you view the exilic story in light of uh, what we were talking about, about this, this Messiah needed, the story then flips, right? So you have during this time is when he wakes up and he's reading, oh, what was it? His little book of, does it say it in our, our, cause like I said, I read both together. Does it say what book he's actually reading, uh, reading out of when he wakes up in the middle of the night or is that just Midrash Rabbah? No, it has it. One of the annals of something, the book of records. Yes. Yeah. So the book it, of records, the Chronicles is just how it says it in. Yeah. Perfect. I, I didn't know if I cross if I sometimes I cross wires. In the Midrash Rabbah, it says like the basically the book of deeds. So it goes into saying that this, the deeds that people have done and that Mordecai was, you know, in there as someone who hadn't been celebrated and he actually had saved the king's life, right? I'm just gonna interject. And that was an it's an interesting thing when you read the story because Mordecai saves his life and literally the next chapter starts with so anyways, Haman gets promoted. <laughs> it's just like, and he's like, wait, 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 I thought Mordecai did it. And if you're, it's your first time reading the story, like, wait, I'm mixed up on these names. And you're like, oh, no, I'm not. That's a weird turn. So yeah, now you get this coming back around to him being recognized for that. Right. And this whole thing, just as it's playing out, it, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but when you're reading through Esther, do you feel like this chunks of like, you're, you're seeing the story, but there's just like, this is a, like, this escalated quickly. 
like, what the heck? Where's this? What's going on here? And so that's why I read the Rabal with it because it really does. It fills in some blanks there. So take that knowledge. I know that's a lot. And we got such a little bit of time that I'm going to like just fire hydrant you with a bunch of things and you guys can piece it together as you will. But that being said, that's kind of the, that's the calendar, right? So that, that put those pieces together for everyone to kind of know where, where we're coming from. I use this terminology all the time. God uses his times, his appointed times and seasons. He will always use his appointed times and seasons. And when you know those things, things just start being like, oh, that happened then. Oh, that's the same thing. That, and you just start making those connections as you're reading through literature whether it's in the Tanakh or extra testamental literature. It just, it's so cool how the calendar plays into that. Can you do me a favor and say that one more time? The God's time works time and thing you said again, because you were talking really fast, but that was deeper than what? God uses his appointed times and seasons over and over again to reveal things. So he's constantly using the times and seasons he, he appointed in the beginning. So the, the three main seasons that we see in scripture are the Passover season, Pesach, the Pentecost season, which is Shavuot, which is the counting of the Omar. That's what that leads up to. And then the, the fall festival, our fall festival, which is um, Sukkot, which is tabernacles. So you see that, and that's when the Feast of Trumpets is, and right before that, you know, you have Yom Kippur and all of the, like, really holy days. So all of these days just continue cycling through, and at some point, you might have to cut this piece out. But as a side note, later on, we need to talk about the curse of the fig tree and how it connects to the ninth of Av, but that's that's a whole other note for another day. (laughs) So... Sorry to interrupt, but it's me, Remy. If you have an issue with anger, then I got a solution for you. The Anger Emporium. The Anger Emporium has a ton of rooms specifically designed to help you unleash the raging anger inside. My personal favorite is the Italian Stallion Room. Nothing feels better than punching a side of beef when my blood is boiling. The perfect stop when you've been disrespected by someone in the office or been cut off on the freeway. The Anger Emporium is there for you. Their goal is to help you not lose your cool in public. The Anger Emporium is centrally located by I-5-101-233-15 and 405 Highway and adjacent to the Beef Grizzle Meal. Don't lose your head because of your anger. Visit the Anger Emporium today. For a limited time, the Anger Emporium is now offering 10 or more group discounts. Call today to hear more about the offer. Now let's get back to the show. You know, it's as we're as we're looking at the Egypt story and that we can put those in. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot to see what's going on there, right? Like he's drawing from the redemption out of Egypt. Automatically, the author's like drawing this story. It's kind of setting us up for there is a redemption, right? I kind of want to move forward into the Haman focus right here. Because he is so hateful towards just, I mean, Mordecai specifically, like he just can't handle this guy. Like, I don't know what he's doing. That's so bad. He cannot handle him. You know, he's leaving, had a couple drinks at Esther's banquet. He's doing good. And he walks home and he sees Mordecai. And all of a sudden that banquet, he's like, man, they've honored me. Got to go to a private banquet. And something about Mordecai the Jew just offsets that. And now he's in a terrible mood. I never read that with understanding until recently. I don't know if you guys are like me, but you're like, dude, it's one man. Get over yourself. 
go on about your life. Like, what is so important that you must have this one person kill? Like, and you have that spirit of like just pride and ego and not being able to put yourself in a correct and appropriate place in the world. It seems he struggled with that. I like that you brought that up too, because uh, underlined throughout my whole Bible, that whole section, right? He's, He's like so happy. He leaves, he's filled with joy from the banquet. And then he sees Mordecai again, who's just the moment Haman was put up on that pedestal, Mordecai just refused to bow down to him and like pay him the homage that he thought he deserved. And the Bible, my Bible has, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. And then he went home to his wife and his friends and was like, it says he boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him and he was elevated. And then it says he actually starts talking and it says, and that's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet. And then the next verse right there, 13 says, but all of this gives me no satisfaction because of Mordecai. So it, it is this depth of like, he listed all the things he has. He has a great accomplishment, wealth, success, and every term that we would look at it. But for mm-hmm. some reason, like you were saying, this one dude just was a chip on his shoulder. And it was like, everything else no longer gives me satisfaction because this guy right there. Bow to me, therefore, the world is over. And I just think of a tantruming child. I'm like, get a different toy. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just see it as I was reading through of... Uh... Mordecai, you know, being the man of God, you know, representing the people of God. And again, he got mad at Mordecai and he went, oh, I want to go kill all of the people of God now. Right. And just having that come. And Haman really, again, he had all of the worldly things and he had all of that and just the animosity and just what's driven there. You're like, you can have everything, but you see the godly person who won't bow down to your worldly power. Like, you know, you can't flex on the person like, no, I'll force you. And they're like, no, And just like, I don't know, because I'm just a guy of humble means. But when you have that much power, that much resource, that much whatever, and to just really like you're in control and everything bows down to you to have something that won't to have someone who won't bow down. I can see how that would be maddening. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because like, that's what your world revolves around is all of who you are. And all of a sudden, oh, you're not who you think you are. And who's saying that? Oh, this man of God is saying that. That's a lot of what I was tying into it. And I was even seeing some maybe parallels to today's world in different places and what the church's role is that we should stand up and not bow down to things and watch how mad the powers that be can get. But what we learned in this story is God's got our back, but I'll pass it back on to you. But I mean, actually, I'm glad you went the direction of, you know, he's going home to his wife because my next sentence is going to be. I'm going to tell you guys a couple stories from the Talmud and the Midrash, and I am going to let your brains make some connections. Because when I read this, as a Messianic believer, I was like, well, if this isn't obvious and completely not discreet, I have no idea what is. So I'm going to read to you. So he goes home to his wife, like you said, and it's like, he's so upset. Well, his wife is the one who gives them the idea. And so... Haman's wife, uh, Zarish, she she advises him to build the gallows, right? And we're not talking about wild, wild west gallows. We're talking about like, you know, the type. And I don't know if you guys know much about ancient Near East gallows, because we think about like, you know, they get the wood and they hang a noose on it and they hang it by the neck. That's what we think about, because that's the culture we're from. Gallows in this time was actually a stake and they either impaled them and like hung their body up on display or 
commonly would nail them up on, and it doesn't say a stake in the Hebrew, it says a tree. Okay, let's sit with that for a second. She suggested him, and I want to, I, I don't have the, because I'm on my phone because my laptop is not working, but I'm going to quote it to the best of my ability. Um, He goes to his wife and she tells him he is a Jew. You can't do away with him by throwing him into a fire and you can't do away with him by sending him out into the wilderness. And she goes down the list of send, uh, sending him to the pit, which is what reference to Joseph being in the dungeon. The word is actually pit, like shield. And so she goes down all of these actual instances of knowledge of historical salvation of the Jews, where she's like, you can't do any of these things to this guy because he's a Jew. And he will be saved from all of these things. But no, no Jew has ever escaped the tree. That's the wording in the Talmud. Okay, let that blow your mind for a second as you sit with it in Messianic, right? And the, the, what we already know. And like I said, remember, this is not only a picking from the past and drawing on symbology. This is bringing into the future. And this is, has, this is going to cast some light on the final redemption. This is where I think this gets really cool. There is a note in the Talmud. It's my favorite story of Haman. And I'm glad we got here without taking five hours. But um, my favorite story of Haman is, it goes something like this. It says, the Almighty, blessed be he, called upon all the trees after see, after hearing his people cry out to him when they received this edict. He heard his people's cries and he was filled with rage that Haman was going to commit gen like genocide, basically. And it said, he called all the trees and asked them who will volunteer to be the tree that is the torture device, the death instrument of Haman. And all the trees were lined up and they all objected in some way, shape or form. They were like, no, we're used for this holy season or no, we have this honor or no, we represent this. We can't have something as unholy and detestable as Haman hanging up on us because we already have so many other things that we represent and are for. So all the other trees objected because of some holy matter that they were involved in. And so like the willow, the palm, all of those, they are used in the um, Sukkot festival and they were used at the water uh, libation ceremony at the temple where they'd walk around the altar and yell, Hoshiana, Hoshiana was happening even during Yeshua's period of time. So all these trees are like, no, we're used in ceremonies and in holy places in the temple. And we have a place. The only tree that could not have any reason or protest in any way or have any objection was the thorn tree. And so the thorn tree volunteered himself to be the instrument in which Haman was stapled to, basically. And that's the Talmud version of God calling the trees that is, that is tradition. That is obviously just a tradition story. But that's something that um, Hebraic people really, you know, they take those traditions to heart. Those are very similar to oral tradition. You know, it's part of the story for anyone who studies that. So this thorn tree offers and volunteers to be the instrument device. And it says that he went out to the gardens and he used his own body, commanded to measure the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. And it ended up being that him using his own body as a measurement was exactly what was needed because he was the one who was pinned or nailed upon the tree to just 
Southgate and die. That was a gallo in his time. So I'm sure that you're hearing the implications in those stories. Now we're going to take it a step further because it's not a coincidence. When you look at the days that all of the things were happening, they fall into the Passover story. And so we fast forward to the New Testament and we look at the days where Yeshua is with his disciples and he says, leave me. I don't want you guys to, you know, come under harm because they're coming for me. Like they're going to come and this is happening. There's a Talmud story or a Mishnah, one of them, that says Mordecai did the same thing. He was sitting with his disciples and he said, I know that Haman is coming for me. He's coming for me first. You guys need to go. I don't want harm to come to you when he comes to get me. Well, when Haman shows up, obviously, he is coming to get him to put him up on the horse and parade him around the city and honor him. And just There's- to be clear for people who aren't familiar with those, it's not like somebody who's familiar with the things that Jesus did went back and wrote these things. These things were written hundreds of years, you know, before Christ was here. And that's the thing of just like, you can look at it like, well, that's not in the Bible, but you have that. But then you have something that did happen with Jesus so much later. And it's like the parallels between those things um, is pretty interesting. And again, they would have known those writings, but I don't think that Jesus like, oh, Mordecai did this. I better do it too. <laughs> but it just. Uh... I think that he was so intentional with his father's word and his father's ways. I think that he, and the more you get into studying it, I could go on all day, we all know this, um, about all the intentional moments of the New Testament where we think, I mentioned the fig tree, like that whole thing is a play out of Jeremiah, like the tossing of the temple tables, the cursing the tree and it withers. It's like breaks your brain when you actually connect it to prophecy and you're like, that's what he's doing. He's walking through intentional scriptures that his, like, the sages of his time would have known. They studied these things and they understood. They understood the stories and the implications. They were very superstitious. A lot of them were Kabbalah people, you know, learning. That's the superstitious numerology. It's the Hebrew superstition, basically, Kabbalah. But I, and I tell people when they're like, oh, that's not in the Bible. I say, it's not authoritative where scripture is, but it's authentic. And so as long as you can determine that you understand that this is, this is authoritative, so this is scripture. This is not authoritative like scripture, but it's authentic and it has practical and good things to say in the story that help us and connect us more with the story. That's kind of helpful for me. And those messianic implications are just so loud. It's like, you can't just sit there and be like, oh, I mean, where, where have I heard this before? Well, I haven't heard it in the Torah before, but I have heard this in the new Torah, right? The Torah that has been given now. So it's just a, such a cool story. And that's found, if people want to look it up, it's in the Esther Rabbah and in the Midrash Abba Goron. That's the story of the God selecting the tree, basically. There's a lot there that we don't get just by a basic reading and the depth that is reflecting back into the Genesis and Exodus. Many sages actually, they say that Haman was not the original in his thinking. And so when I say it goes back to Genesis, a lot of sages, a lot of um, rabbis who go through this will connect him to Adam, which I think is a really fascinating thought because they say he wasn't the original in his thinking. Adam, too, had everything he could ask for and still was stuck on one thing. So it's like 
it, it's the tragedy of mankind, and that's that's what the, the sages basically say, that this is the tragedy of mankind, thinking that we are the pinnacle of creation, which is, I mean, that's basically true, right? Like, we are why this was all created. But the wrong thinking in that, because that's not exactly false, the wrong thinking in that is building on it and refusing to acknowledge the limits of our own authority within where we have been placed. So we are limited creatures and our authority comes from the most high. And when we don't bow to those limitations, we end up in the predicament of Haman and Adam. So, you know, that's um, an interesting connection. Yeah, first I was just like, I don't really like the Adam connection basically because I was just like, Adam didn't really have that thing. You know, the temptation came in and, and that. But then when looking, I was kind of thinking about it and Haman, like his whole thing is like, he wanted to be like God, you know, like to be able to, it doesn't outright say it. And that was the temptation of the tree of knowledge of good and evil going back to, you know, even that episode we covered is, you know, mm-hmm. the, the serpent said, hey, do this and you'll be like God. So um, I'm not going to say here that I'm, I'm fully on board. I need, I would need to read that and study it, but I can at least see that thing of being like God and having that power and doing that, that transferring that over. We have to think kind of chiastically and how, where else have I seen this and what are the patterns between the two things? Because the other thing is they both met their demise because of a tree. I, I like that you brought that up too, because we talked about that in the, when we went over the dragon. So we went through the book of Revelation on chapter 12. And it was like, you have to understand that like nothing new was written in Revelation that wasn't written in the Bible already. So when you look at the Bible, it is a good way to kind of understand the full story of things is where have I heard that? I like that, that you said that rabbi you listened to the, where have I read this before the game? And you have to kind of start reading things like that because that's when it starts to make sense. That's mm-hmm. when you start seeing the implications of things, right? You're talking about Haman and he used himself to measure the gallows and everything in the, on the tree. Really, when I read it, it was like the book of Esther kind of went through like a the first few chapters were years, right? When you looked at the calendar, it started in the in the third year of the reign of King of Xerxes, and then in this reign, and then this year. And I think by the time we got to that part, it was already in the 12th year mm-hmm. of his reign. But then once you get to the measurement uh, or the, the gallows story, everything goes quick. And it goes quick and it goes bad for Haman really, really quick for where like he was fed up with Mordecai. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take him out. I've already got the decree to eradicate all of his people. That's happening. And then it was oh, wait, I remember that Mordecai did this for him. So now I'm honoring him. And now Haman has to sit there and put on the robe, all the things that he wanted, put it on Mordecai. And now he's frustrated and angry about all that. But then as soon as like he couldn't even process that anger, he got pulled into the banquet. And in the banquet, it was like, oh, his grand plan was exposed and the people were saved. And then he was let out and, and executed on that, that gallow that he had constructed. But it, to me, that's the fascinating part about this book. And even going back to what you're talking about, like how that is that one thing we can't get rid of, that sometimes it goes on for years and years and years and years. But then the, the, the demise of ourselves, where it leads us, kind of does happen quick. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, it's, it, it's also intertangled that it, it kind of just it plays out for you. Um, and like I said, years and years of reading the story, even on my own, I was like, this just seems like there's more to it. 
thankfully there was because I really like digging, but I just, I really loved the discovering. And I, some of the listeners probably are like, wow, these people are crazy. Like this is a little too much. And it, it's a lot like discovering the calendar season and connecting that not only to Moshe, Moses and the people of Israel coming out of that exile, but also like the Messiah and the final redemption. Like this is kind of pulling on those two stories, that's kind of normal, right? Like pulling on a, a Messiah better than Moses. It's it's interesting there just all together. And, you know, it's all the whole story, like I said, is like this big charade game or masquerade where it's like, there's always hidden pieces. And I, I will move forward with the hidden pieces. I think one interesting thing from the sages that they have to offer are the eunuch who comes in and he's like, oh, there just so happens to be a gallo that is 50 cubits in Haman's yard. Oh, that's Eliyahu Hanavi. And I'm like, how do you just randomly insert that? That's Elijah the prophet. That's what that means. Sorry. So yeah, it's like they insert Elijah into the story and, and they do that throughout. If you listen to any Hebrew anything, you're going to start hearing the occurrences of Eliyahu Hanavi like over and over again, where he appears and is with the Messiah or declaring the Messiah in some way. So it does not surprise me that the sages had something to offer, that Elijah was a part of the story somehow with it being a messianic piece of literature to some extent. So take that for what you will. That's just a kind of side little nugget. But I, I found that very interesting that they, that's who they think he is charaded as, that, that that's Eliyahu masked as the eunuch in the palace. That's an interesting thing. Just when you're talking about the sages and we talk about Jesus being familiar with that, because when they're talking about with him, that, oh, wouldn't Elijah have to come? And he said, hey, if you'll believe it, John the forerunner, he, he was Elijah. Mm-hmm. And it, that sounds like that same kind of talking. And I found that as I study different intertextuality and different things that you're saying are, are just kind of written outside of a lot of stuff that when I read through it, I'm like, man, a lot of this stuff seems just like super unique to Jesus. And then you read like, oh, he was trained up in his way. And some of the things that he'll say at times, you know, relates to these other things. Maybe he's repeating something that another rabbi had said. Whereas when I just read it, I'm like, man, Jesus is smart. Like <laughs> he just said that thing. But that's interesting. I'd never knew that. I'd never known that, that they would plug in Elijah in different places. That makes way more sense than how Elijah could come through and that it would be John and that Jesus would speak of him in that way. It's, it's talked about in a lot of rabbinic literature because you have that there's always that tension and that, I guess that ebb and flow of Elijah will come before the the messianic era is ushered in right so you have this forerun you always have elisha and elisha story and there's just so much richness to that so once you grasp onto it you start noticing the literature kind of play that out and where the sages have said no that's what this is or in the midrash specifically where they're commentating they'll insert that as their thoughts on things and so john the baptist being well john the immerser he uh him being the John the Baptist or the Elisha in the story does not at all surprise me. And so when I started making those connections too, like, I'm glad you said that because it's just this whole beautiful messianic play out that goes back. Like it's, it's going back to the beginning and you have forerunners from the beginning. So get into Hebrew literature and more of the roots for that, that specific study. But somebody mentioned something about the 10 sons, like, 
There is actually, I guess on a, this is kind of a side note. It's completely relevant. I promise. But for people who like more of the Kabbalah type stuff, there was, so the word, uh, tomorrow and Esther, it's actually translated very interesting. And so what the, what the sages had to offer on it was there is a tomorrow that is now, and there is a tomorrow that is to come. So like you're seeing these messianic overtones and stuff, right? There's a tomorrow that is now, and there's a tomorrow that is to come. Well, here's an interesting story. Take it as you will. But along the lines of, you know, Haman and the anti-Semitic spirit, and like I mentioned, the spirit of Hitler, I said I'd get into more of that. Well, this is where that happens. So um, him being just outwardly and blatantly against the Jews. I mean, it's not even like, oh, I'm just, you know, against people or I'm just an enemy. It's like he had one focus and one thing. He wanted to annihilate them all. He's just going to kill all the Jews. Throughout history, we've had anti-Semitic like overtones in, you know, many stories, even so much to where Martin Luther said he has a quote and you can look it up. I, I can't quote it verbatim, but Martin Luther does have a quote on the book of Esther where he says that he wishes the book didn't exist, that it was of no use to Christians. And there is not one noble character in the entire book. You have this like anti-Semitic language and like Jews would po point out that Haman is probably of all of them, the most anti like he is the anti-Semite. Like he is the one. And like they'll they'll speak a little bit on Pharaoh and they'll speak a bit on um Potiphar and but like you don't get any of that. Like they just didn't like foreigners, right? You get from their stories, they didn't like foreigners, they didn't like people in their land. No, Haman is like I and Nebuchadnezzar, even like even the sages will brush over Nebuchadnezzar and be like, it was by God's hand. Like God used Nebuchadnezzar. Hashem did this to X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's interesting that Haman specifically is just, no, he is anti-Semitic. Like there's no excuse for him. He is an anti-Semite and they use it throughout history as the spirit of anti-Semitism leading up to Hitler even, and like some of the Nazi guards and whatever. But like I said, Martin Luther quote, there was a professor on a board. I think it was it wasn't Oxford, but it was a, it was a prestigious school, and he said something along the lines of the book itself. Once again, has no honorable characters. He said something up to those lines, and he pointed out that that the Jews probably brought that up on themselves in some way. That the way they acted actually initiated Haman's hatred towards them. And there's a lot of like reasoning like that that tends to lean towards some some modern anti-Semitic thought. And then my favorite is Josephus himself. Flavius Josephus takes the floor to be the greatest historian of all times and says this. It says when he quotes to the king, when Haman quotes to the king, that there is a people in your nation who is unfriendly and unsocial. And so he uses that quote to say that they were bringing the unwanted attention upon themselves because they were not friendly and they were so elitist. It's one of the first arguments of dual loyalty in politics is the in Esther. So are you, your, your internal laws actually, um, they conflict with the laws of the, like the laws that govern you. And so that's dual loyalty, like King dispose of these people because politically it does you no good to keep them because they don't honor you because their laws are different and they will not abide. That's dual loyalty. That's the, one of the first arguments for dual loyalty. And it's a political argument and you find it in Esther first. 
Like that is, that's how far we go back into some of these themes. But more modern and some conspiracy, I'm going to warn you, is if you go down the list in the Hebrew of Haman's 10 sons, you can read them and their Hebrew names. And I'd have to have them in front of me and I'm not even going to attempt to recite those. But of the four sons, there um, in the Hebrew script, there's three letters that stand out. And it's actually written, um, you know, poetry is kind of aligned perfectly parallel. And it says, son of, son of, son of, and it's like in lines like that, listed 10 times. In that beautiful, like, poem-like thing in the middle of the scroll, you notice that there's three letters in their names that are intentionally lowercased. And so for a long time, like, people are like, why are those letters lowercased? And Haman's ten sons, it spells, it's, it's a Tav, a Shin, and a Zion. For anyone who knows Hebrew, that spells nothing. It's it's like uh, Tashaz. That's not a word. So, like, we've played with it. Nobody could figure out, like, it doesn't mean anything. And a lot of times there would be, like, cryptic little lowercase or uppercase things within scrolls like that. Especially in apocalyptic scrolls that are revealing, like I said, apocalypse, when we're talking about a hidden script, which Esther is all hidden. And it's coming to light. It's peeling back those layers and revealing. That's where, where it gets its apocalypse is it's coming into revelation. It's revealing itself. Nothing is revealed about these letters. So you have a Tav, a Shin, and a Zayn. Well, in Hebrew, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, letters can mean numbers. And so that number could have been in the Hebrew, I forget what the actual, like the Hebrew calendar number was, but it equates to the 1946 on our calendar. The Gregorian calendar would reflect it as 1946. So I have an interesting story about 1946. The Nuremberg trial, where all of the Nazi soldiers, they were the committed war crimes. Do you guys know much about Nazi Germany? This matters because Haman was an anti-Semite and Hitler was an anti-Semite. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I know somewhat. I don't know where you're going with it. Like, I don't know how much of it I can relate back to, to this. Oh, I just, I, this was actually, as I was reading for this podcast, the story came up and I was like, <clears throat> so I connected this. I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is ridiculous. During the Neumaberg trials, there there's 12 individuals who are prosecuted. And they said, you know, it would do a dishonor for you to go before the firing squad. We actually, like, not for the people. It's actually, you guys are so dishonorable because of what you've done. Because this was uh, Stryker. I don't know if you guys know who Stryker was. He was one of the main Nazi sympathizers. He wrote children's books on anti-Semitism to spread hatred towards the Jews and Nazi Germany. And he is the one who gathered up like all of the propaganda and all the hate against them. Like he was really just like riling it up. He, he earned Hitler's honor so many times because of his amount of disloyalty to the Jews. Like, he hated them. So we have those, those they call it the spirit of Haman. What happened is in 1946, they judged that those people, there were 12 of them with Stryker in the lead, 12 of them went to trial and were said, you know, that they're going to be killed. One of them ended up getting out on a legal loophole, leaving 11. Then one of them committed suicide the night before leaving 10. And they said, you know, no military is going to give you the honor of a military firing squad. You don't deserve that. So you guys are going to be hung on gallows. And so 10 people hung on gallows in 1946. When Stryker comes through, they said, identify yourself in German. I don't speak German, so I won't give you the honors of that. And he screams to the top of his lungs, 
Heil Hitler. And they like jab it at him and say, identify yourself. And he said, you know who I am. And so they said again, tell us your name. And so he yells, I think it's Julie. I don't know if his name was Julie. I think it was Julius Stryker is what his name was, but Stryker. So he yells that and they push him out onto the, the gallows. This is an actual gallows at this point where they, they hung by the neck. And he yells, Purim Festival 1946. This is in documented history. Purim Festival 1946. He says that. It's such a horrendous sight. He hangs there alive and will not die that they have to end up doing away with him by the executioner because he won't die by being hung. So there's some interesting theory for you to the three random letters in the 10 sons of Haman's name and 1946 that I connected this week. I was like, oh my God, that's really, really weird. So striker and the anti-Semite nature. I find that all very fascinating. It really is just the way it all lines up in the story and how you put that all together. The one thing as kind of we wrap up here with this episode, and thank you so much, Brittany, because this has been amazing. I love the history you brought to it and the the beyond what we kind of read through our, our Bible sometimes. But what I really drew out of all of this was this guy, Haman, that was so evil, right? That the Bible categorizes him as the enemy of the Jews that as you would get towards like later in history and as you brought up Hitler and a lot of other people that it would be called even the spirit of Haman that there is be the spirit of an enemy that would want to come out and destroy God's people uh-huh. and even tying the whole story together of Mordecai what what was the whole thing like you're saying the letter written to the king it was because these people's customs aren't like ours and like how Murdoch you you kind of brought that all at the beginning was this book is a lot about how you know, as a people, customs not being the same as what they were living in, in the in the places that they were living in, and kind of like Haman and, and all of this being the world, and as Mordecai and the people being God's chosen people, living out different standards. So it is a great book to read. The one thing I did want to ask you about before we kind of do our signature wrap up here. So I looked into the Purim. Is that, am I saying that right? Because I'm totally a novice in all of this. Pretty close. Okay. I looked into it a little bit, and I don't know if this is true or not. But is it that when uh, they, the name of Haman is mentioned, that people make noises or they play instruments or something like that so that you don't even hear the name? We scream and go, boo, and we use noisemakers to drown out his name and like mark it out. This has been great. I, as you can see, I, I really dug what you were saying. And I'm kind of my brain slightly in the middle went like exploded a little bit because it, it was just a lot to take in. So thanks, Britt. Yeah, no problem. This is definitely a lot. I definitely gave you guys like several years worth of <laughs> studies to go over and over because this wasn't all gathered overnight. You know what I mean? Uh, Murdoch, you're still on mute, buddy. Yeah, right as I opened my mouth, a big old thing popped in the middle of the screen like, hey, no one can hear you. I was just going to say thank you as well. And just as I read this again, you, yeah, I think you said that there's the tomorrow that's then and tomorrow that comes later. And within the thought, it's wrapping in what's already happened, what's going to be and bringing all that together. We talked about the Messiah coming and the forerunner to all of that. And for me, just looking at everything, uh, we know the Messiah. We know that he hung on a tree and that he conquered death. <laughs> like, you know, if you look at Satan being the ultimate enemy and just the downfall there, right? You see Haman plotting to get one over and then he ends up on the tree. In the spiritual realm, the ultimate enemy there, what happens is Satan, you know, tries to kill the Messiah and it ends up being his downfall. 
And what happens when it just to wrap up the story, at least in Esther, is that the decree that got put out that, hey, everybody go and kill God's people. And then the decree comes out after that saying, hey, you know what, God's people defend yourself <laughs> and, you know, turn that around. And that became the celebration that they won over the evil that sought to destroy them. And again, yeah, just so specific to him, you look at Passover being, hey, we're free from Egypt and Passover celebrates that. Purim is just definitely just like, hey, Haman's dead. Ding dong, the witch is gone. Like, let's celebrate. So it's definitely very specific to him. During a Passover, while they were in exile, that led into a new holiday. Like, it's just all this interesting I really did like that connection, Murdoch, the, the tree uh, where the enemy thought was going to be his victory was his destruction. And the gallow tree that Haman thought was going to be his victory was his destruction. It, it's super cool. This has been, I guess, for me, educational episode of our podcast. All right, let's wrap this one up. I am Chris. I'm your the And I'm Brittany. And we are your church friends. Thanks for listening. When I was a lad, I hatched four dozen plots every morning to raise myself high. And now that I'm grown, I hatch five dozen plots, so all who oppose me shall die. No one plots like Haman, calls the shots like Haman, plans a genocide by casting lots like Haman, for there's none so well-favored and kingly. Yes, we all can be certain of that. He's so rich that his pockets are jingly. And he looks really sharp in a three-cornered hat. No one spruce as Haman, nor abstruse as Haman. No one's half as good at tying noose like Haman. He'll use gallows in all of his decorations.